Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Lucinda Holforth is a speechwriter and author. She was Kim Beasley's speechwriter during the Hawke and Keating governments and also has worked with many of the country's leading CEOs. Her new book, 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy, is a look at how our new online performative selves may be undermining our civic lives and with it, our democracy. Lucinda argues that what might seem like benign virtues may be at the heart of a lot of the problems we are now seeing in the erosion of trust and connectedness. Lucinda Holdforth, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, Lucinda, your your new book is called The 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. What for you are these new virtues and why did you feel that you needed to write this book? Anthony, I am by profession a speechwriter and I guess my currency is words. I look at what words are popular in the culture. I think about why some words have become popular and some have lost currency And I noticed a set of words that just kept coming up time and again. And those words were vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, my truth, which may or may not be the same as the truth, self-care, humility, and empathy. And once I noticed these words, I couldn't unsee them. And what I also noticed was that these words weren't just in the current in in the culture, but that they were elevated as virtues, which is an important distinction. It means that if you are representing those virtues, you are representing goodness. But in the absence of other virtues, what they seem to me to amount to is a prizing of individual uniqueness, personal experiences of reality and the quest for self-acceptance and self-love. Therefore, in that package, it seems to me that they privilege self before community and feelings over facts. I would also note that, I mean, what really surprised me is that this this new virtue language has been adopted right across the spectrum from the big heads of big corporations, CEOs and chairs, through leftist activists, university vice-chancellors, church leaders, lawyers and management consultants. So this is, it seems to me, a fundamental change in the way we talk about and think about what is good in our culture, and it's been, it has achieved widespread adoption. We're going to unpack these virtues one by one, but let's talk about why you wrote the book. You obviously feel that this emphasis on the individual is a threat to democracy. How how do you see that happening? Well, it's pretty simple in a way. I mean, Aristotle a long time ago said that man is a social animal and we live like bees in a hive in a community. And he thought that a virtuous person was someone that did the right thing, the right time for the right reasons and that that's what constituted virtue. Now, since then, we've had various different, you know, um, religious variations on this, different ideas about what virtue is. But now we've got a sense of extreme, it's not even individualism in these virtues, it's almost solipsism, a kind of anguish looking in 
self-interrogation as the most important part, self-care, self-interrogation, my perspectives on reality. And once we start operating in a world like that, we lose the civic spirit. So that that in itself undermines democracy. But the other thing that happens is I think when we privilege feelings over facts, and that's what my truth is about, and that's what even the, the ideas of authenticity, vulnerability are about, it's the it's the idea of what I feel. I feel before, therefore I am. Then we then we start heading into very dangerous territory. You may know the great Maria Ressa, Nobel Prize winner from a couple of years ago, and she says this. She says, "Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three things, we have no shared reality, cannot solve problems, and have no democracy." So the risk is with a set of virtues that are about the self first and that are about feelings over facts, we lose the we lose the battle for a shared reality that will help us solve our shared problems like climate change, like economic inequality and so on. So that's really the link that I draw, that these virtues in the absence of other virtues, not necessarily on their own, but in the absence of other virtues that are externally oriented like integrity, honesty and truthfulness, we are heading down a dangerous path. Well, let's unpack the first one, authenticity. You know, it sounds actually quite benign, but you obviously think that this is a, a, a problem in the digital age. Look, it's true. Authenticity has become... It's the highest form of praise, isn't it? If we talk about the prim- anyone from the prime minister to someone else, we say, oh, they're so authentic. And authenticity is a very appealing idea. You know, it's why we value grand, great master paintings, you know, that this is the real deal. This is something we can hang on to and trust. But the great American poet Walt Whitman said, I contain multitudes. And don't we all? We are complex creatures authenticity for me when I was 15 is very different from my authenticity now at 60. We are malleable, changing creatures, and that is a good thing. So in a way, I see authenticity almost, the praising of it so highly as a sort of meta-virtue, as almost um, a straitjacket. It's a way of saying, you must be like this. You must show yourself in a certain way that is appealing to us. We, we, we describe you as authentic and then we won't want you to change. And in the, in the book, I use some examples of great political leaders who've actually had to deny their own authentic values in order to do the right thing for the greater good. And there's a very, you know, poignant Australian example in the case of the Prime Minister that we had during the Second World War, John Curtin. He was a pacifist, a very committed, sincere pacifist. Yet he found himself in the historical position where he had to take Australia into the Second World War. He did that for the greater good. He ruptured his own deep belief system for the greater good. He put his own authenticity aside for the nation. And he actually died before the war was over. So I think it's very important for us not to not to ask people to hold to some perfect, unchanging idea of authenticity. It's a dangerous idea, and you know we can we can note in passing that 
very extreme nationalist regimes and totalitarian regimes have traditionally held up certain ideals of authenticity uh, as being highly valuable and they've been excuses for extreme racism and discrimination. So I'm not in love with the word authenticity. Um, and I, I guess I would also say, Anthony, that the word authentic comes from the word self, but great leaders, I think, operate in terms of integrity. And integrity is a word, the, the, the etymology of the word is wholeness. That is, they look at the whole. They're looking at the bigger picture, at all the different elements. And that goes back to what Aristotle said when he said the right, the right decision at the right time for the right reason. Integrity means looking at the whole, not just being driven out of your own particular narrow perspective. And that's why I see authenticity as a double-edged sword in our modern society, and we should be careful how we praise it. What do you think of the idea that authenticity is also quite an empty term? Like I'm thinking of, it was one of the reasons given why Scott Morrison beat Bill Shorten. He was more authentic. Three years later, it's also the reason given for why Scott Morrison lost the election. Authentic seems a pretty <laughs> empty term. It, you know, Indeed, if it, it's... Yeah, it, uh, you're right. I mean, it is not available for some objective verification, is it? No. Authenticity, and I, I guess that's one of the the big points of the essay, and why I say that's an issue when we go for feelings over facts. You know, I don't really, I don't really care what leaders get up to in their private lives, as long as they're not doing something corrupt or you know depraved. Uh, I just want them to be good leaders, and I think the expectation that the leader is meant to somehow embody all these, you know, wonderful qualities is a really unhelpful and a deterrence for good people going into public life. And as you say, I mean, didn't Groucho Marx say, I think he said it of sincerity, but the same thing, if you can fake authenticity, you've got it made. It's not that hard to fake authenticity, but you can't fake integrity. Vulnerability is a, a, another virtue for you that uh, the 20th century has thrown up and you believe it's leading us astray. How, how so? Well, vulnerability, Anthony, that is the human condition. We're all going to die. Bad things are going to happen to all of us. And I guess the reason the term vulnerables become partly elevated is because we've wanted to recognise that there are vulnerable people in our community and we need to take more care of them, be more aware of vulnerability as a, as a factor in modern life. And none of that's a problem for me, but I do have an issue with the idea that vulnerability is an actual virtue. I, I think it sends a terrible message to kids. I think we don't, I, I don't want to live in a society when we're telling children that if you claim to be vulnerable, that you are equally claiming some kind of virtue. And I don't want, I feel that that's a very you know, bad message to send to them. And ironically, of course, schools now do resilience training. So we've now got the perverse situation where we have training, resilience training to overcome the terrible disadvantages caused by having the virtual vulnerability. And I would also say, you know, we now attribute vulnerability where we don't need to. So one example for me is just when Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, resigned from politics, everyone said, well, she was so vulnerable, poor Jacinda, you know, it was terrible how she was treated. She was wounded, she was vulnerable, she's gone away to nurse her wounds. That was the tenor of the public 
discussion. There were all kinds of op-eds and things written about it. Now, when we look at Jacinda Ardern, she's a very interesting politician. She was expressive and emotional. She showed emotions. She hugged people. And she was also very decisive and very opinionated. And that made, has made her a very, very intriguing modern politician. But I think the more likely reality is that she saw the polling. Her polling was terrible. She's a canny politician. That's what she is. Good on her. Let's not call her some poor, weak, vulnerable woman. She's a canny politician. She saw the polling was bad. She's headed for the exit. And I believe she's already got one great international role, and I'm sure she will have many others. So I don't want to send messages to women that this is a great idea. You are a good woman if you're vulnerable. We you're may taking away her agency, aren't you? We really do. And um, it's trivialising in a way, isn't it? Um, yeah, so uh, there's another issue with vulnerability for me, which is that you now often hear people claiming vulnerability as a kind of shield and so when they express themselves, when I wish to express myself, my my views, which may be difficult or unpleasant, which you may disagree with, if you say to me, Anthony, but I feel vulnerable and unsafe when you say that, I feel insecure, I feel bad because I'm vulnerable. When you say these things, I find difficult to hear. That is a very clear implied message to me that my freedom of speech should be curtailed for the sake of the higher order value of your vulnerability. It's a threat to free speech, in fact, at the extreme. And I see people who are afraid to speak what they think because other people say, oh, well, I'll feel bad if you say that. That is not a good reason not to speak in a, in a free society. You, now, you also find dangers with empathy, which th that will, I think, be a surprise to a lot of people. How does empathy lead us astray? <laughs> well, when we talk about empathy, we are forced, Anthony, and I regret to say, to talk about Brené Brown. And Brené Brown, I'm not sure, are you aware of Brené Brown, Anthony? No? So I was going to say yes, uh, through your book. I, I'm, through I'm, my I'm, book, I'm now okay. aware of her. <laughs> you are now, and you will never forget Brené Brown. So Brené Brown, in 2010 gave a TED Talk, which is still one of the most popular TED Talks in history, called The Power of Vulnerability. Oh, gosh, there's where the vulnerability comes in. And she's gone on to write a whole series of books. There are training courses in Brene Brown, and you will find, if you know people in corporate life, they will have done training in Brene Brownianism. She's become like the virtue god, modern virtue goddess. Uh, and uh, I don't blame her for it. Good on her. She's making a living and it's been very successful. So one of the virtues that she, so she, her argument was, is that we, she started from the premise that we lived in a world which was her American adult, the American adult co cohort that she knew in 2010 was the most obese, over-medicated, addicted and anxious cohort in history. And her response to that was to say, in order to deal with this, we need to all become more vulnerable and open and therefore connected. And then as part of that, she celebrated the notion of empathy. So empathy as in, and she uses this image, that somebody is down a well 
and they're lonely and they're afraid. They're down the well, I'm down here, I'm I'm not doing so well. And she said, we can walk past or we can look over into the well and see that person. And then we might even wish to climb down into the well with them. And that that is empathy, to be beside another person in their suffering. For me, empathy is simply an idea about feelings. So I see in public life all the time saying, I feel empathy towards you this person's situation. That is usually code for saying, I have no real intention of doing anything about it. It's like empathy as a replacement for action. And in this instance, I prefer the old word of kindness. I think empathy implies feelings and kindness demands and generates action. And I think that is a more virtuous way to go. I think empathy is a cop-out, in fact. But you are by trade a, a speechwriter. I mean, authenticity, humility, empathy, these would be, I, I would be thinking, touchstones in many of the speeches that you've written. Is is for you the difference that it's it's outward rather than inward looking? Well, it's not touchstones, actually, for the speeches I've written, Anthony. That's okay. a very interesting question. Well, like empathy. Like, obviously, we want leaders who who recognise our, our situation and, and, yes. and empathy is obviously part of that. It's you, Do you know that that I see that as kind of a fallacy? I mean, empathy is clearly a personal emotion. So it's I, I can I can empathise with your specific individual situation. Now, unless we're talking about somebody with a team of three people who I don't consider a leader, they're a manager, and I know we've inflated the term leader so much. But the people I write for are very senior and they're dealing with thousands of people. And so this is a luxury of this idea of picking out individual specific cases for individual specific feelings is of no use to anyone. What a great leader is about is about putting systems and structures in, in place which enable everyone to flourish to the maximum. So for me, the empathetic leader idea seems to suggest that you say, well, if we find a leader who can relate to my experience, then they're going to do the right thing. And perhaps we've all seen too many American movies where some leader has sort of had an epiphany from seeing someone in a difficult situation. But that's not what I call leadership. So that's a that's a sort of small fantasy of leadership. I mean, just, great, just being the devil's advocate here, though, like the, the, op- the opposite... The opposite, and I think the, the, the thing where I'm guessing a listener would be worried about when they're talking about a leader... When you talk about someone like Elon Musk, obviously empathy is something that's missing completely and 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 to the detriment of everyone working for him. <laughs> yes. So I, I so I just wanted to un, like I, I can definitely see how empathy can be a an empty or a, a term that's really can be misused, but the the absence of empathy is also an op, a problem. Of course, and it's a sign of psychopathy and sociopathy and various things. Yes, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I mean, I I think you know, great leaders are wise. Great leaders, great leaders are people that have have a drive to make things better. That's that's what a great leader is. That's what I mean. They're they're oriented towards the future and they're taking people with them to the future. So you're right. I'm I'm not advocating for some cold flooded automaton, but I guess I'm trying to perhaps speak strongly just to encourage people to see that 
we should not be a, a person that stands up and says, I feel empathy for you, does not auto- should not automatically win your vote. Mm. I mean, that's not what it's about. That's feelings again. And I'll give you another example. And this is a personal example, so feel free to discount it. But when I had I had breast cancer, like many, many women, and like many, many women, it was a horrible time. And what was interesting to me was that I didn't really want people to feel my feelings with me. The people that were really effective at helping me were often ones who drew on their own preferences, skills, or tastes. So a friend of mine loves cooking. She would bring food around. Another friend of mine was working in a secondhand bookshop, and she just curated. She wasn't living in Sydney. So she would mail me every three weeks a book or two that she thought I might enjoy. A secondhand book would come through the mail to me. So that kind of at a personal level, so you're I talking, believe. Yeah, so talking actions rather than I like I your am, I like your tweet. Yes, exactly. I think that's right. And actions and, you know, when in my essay I, re- I refer to the German philosopher Nietzsche who thought pity was patronising and, of course, uh, we can understand why in the 19th century context. But I often see empathy, the idea of empathy is presumptuous. It assumes we can feel each other's feelings. I think in a way that's disrespectful to the great mystery of the human condition, that even when we're experiencing roughly the same things, we're completely different to each other. And, yeah, and I, I appreciate people that draw upon their own experiences or their own practical abilities to contribute. Well, let's talk about the last virtue, self-care. Oh, uh, yes, self-care. <laughs> I mean, that, that's something we obviously see all the time now on, on our social lives. If you're online, you know, people talking about their self-care routine. Why, why is this a danger to democracy for you? Well, once again, if we go back to this original point that a democracy relies on us having a sense that um, all the good things that we enjoy and cherish in our lives here in Australia and in any democracy, and even the progress towards inclusion and tolerance and diversity, all of these things utterly depend upon a successful, effective democracy. And democracy fundamentally depends upon the idea that you have an informed citizenry operating out of a shared reality, a shared fact base, and with a recognition of a a notion of a greater good. Okay, so what do we have with self-care? Self-care at a very basic level is, of course, a, a good citizen's responsibility to look after my health, to look after my well-being, Someone like me in a, in a privileged position, of course, I should do my best to look after myself. And yet self-care has now become, well, obviously it's a great way to sell stuff to us now. So the neoliberal system is busy marketing to all of us how much we need to, you know, to buy makeup for women especially, but for all of us to how to be thin, how to be beautiful, how to how to go away on a retreat, why we need holidays, why we need to put ourselves first. I mean, the self-care ultimately in the modern sense means me first, selfishness. So I have some women friends when I was talking to them about this and they were very cross with me. And they said, well, Lucinda, I am exhausted all the time. I have all these duties. I'm caring for my parents. I'm caring for my kids. I'm trying to hold down a job. You know, prices are out of control. 
if I just want to go to a yoga class or have a facial, don't tell me that that's bad. And I'm certainly not saying that that's bad. But what I want to know is why should those women feel guilty about looking after themselves? Why don't we have a society that has decent childcare and more secure jobs and less stress on people's working people and unworking people's lives? So self-care is a way to distract us from the shared issues we need to face in kind of political and policy terms, I think. It's also, out of all the virtues that you've talked about, the one which I think that people fall into narcissism with. You know, if I'm stressed and I need to take time off from my job, and I probably do, you know, I want to go sit on a beach and read a book, but do I then need to Instagram that and let everybody know that I'm on the beach (laughs) reading a book? There was a time when you just read a book and no one else knew about it. Yes, exactly. Well, that goes to one other theme of my book, really, which is where this sort of these virtues really feed into um, sort of deeper psychic risks to democracy because, um, you know, one of the one of the figures I mention in my book is Milan Kundera, who died recently, the great Czech writer. And in 1968, you know, he was in Czechoslovakia when the Soviet tanks rolled in. So he wrote very brilliantly and thoughtfully about what does a totalitarian regime want to do And one of the things they like to do is have full visibility over each citizen's lives. So part of these, all of these virtues together, like being authentic and vulnerable, these are all about being open, telling my truth. This is all about being kind of transparent, very, very radically open to the world, including, as you say, Instagramming your holiday on a beach. And it's got to the point now where someone who cares for their private life is seen as a bit sneaky and suspicious. Well, and look, that brings up a a part of the book I did want to talk about. I thought it was one of the more powerful and persuasive parts of the book where you're talking about George Orwell identifying privacy as a really vital Mm. part of democracy. Let's talk about that. I mean, why is privacy such an important part of living in a democratic world? It's absolutely, well, George Orwell in 1941 starts an absolutely beautiful essay called England, Your England, with the amazing line, as I write this, very civilised people are flying overhead trying to kill me. Of course, it was the German Luftwaffe. Mm. And in that essay, he, you know, he was very critical of, uh, of the English, and yet in that essay he writes this tender, loving tribute to a certain qualities of Englishness, which was this love of the private life. And he talks about coupon snippers and crossword puzzle doers and pigeon fanciers and the love of the unaffiliated pleasures of the pub and the tea room. And he argues that this, he's, and, he, and he jokingly but seriously says the most hated words for an Englishman are the words nosy Parker. And then as he's reflecting on a possible German invasion of Britain, he says that he thinks this love of the private unaffiliated life would mean that in all probability the British would never cop the Gestapo, that they would never become the Gestapo. So that's a, that's a celebration of this sort of intrinsic humanity and our humanity deep inside our private selves and our private lives. And that takes us back to Milan Kundera, who said the man who would be the man who would be the same in his private life as in his public life would be 
a monster. He would be without spontaneity in his private life and without responsibility in his public life. And this is all part of the same way of thinking about what it is to be a human being and how precious if we are to live in a democracy with uh, these important shared values, I think part of that is the recognition of each individual's liberties and private spaces and the importance of that. Well, look, obviously social media is uh, is the enemy of the private. The whole point of it is to to put part, you know, basically post our lives in front of everybody to, you know, see where whenever we're doing something. But uh, what for you is the danger of the media? Because the media also has a checkered history in respecting people's rights to privacy. It's obviously a, a burning issue in the media at any one time. We only need to look at one of our uh, major news organisations to see, you know, <laughs> private texts from Brittany Higgins. I mean, the, the media is also part of this problem too, isn't it? Yes, it is, Anthony. And I, I, you know, I don't, alas, I don't have some answer to that problem, but I suppose we get, we end up with a media that we accept, don't we? And if we, if we don't apply our democratic pressure against organisations which transgress privacy so badly, then that's going to continue. I mean, I don't really see a solution to that except that sometimes those media organisations which do push too far come up against, you know, privacy legislation and other measures to protect privacy whilst preserving freedom of speech. I suppose I would really say is that's always a contest in a democracy, isn't it? The right to know and the right to privacy. And that's why we have to be very watchful and careful in the kind of measures we have in place. I am a great believer. I feel that do feel that freedom of speech is uh, is under pressure in all kinds of different ways right now. And my bias is absolutely towards greater freedom of speech. But I also recognise that we have, you know, that we we have lim- proper limitations on freedom of speech in some areas, like you know, incitement to violence or racism, terrorism. And perhaps we might revisit this question of the right to privacy. Final question here. I mean, how do you see a more confident democracy coming about? You know, what what are the virtues that we we need to basically be embracing? You, you've you've identified these these new virtues that you think are feeding into some of the issues and problems that we are now experiencing in in our daily lives, in in our online lives, in you know, ever experiencing from our media. Do you see? Uh, a path forward? Anthony, I do think there is a, a way forward. I don't have all the answers. Part of my aim in writing this essay was to invite and encourage others to contribute their thoughts and ideas on this. But I was struck by something said recently by Martin Wolf, who is a very eminent journalist for the Financial Times. And he's written a book called The Crisis of democratic capitalism in which his you know fundamental thesis is that the the disparity caused by laissez-faire capitalism is ultimately a danger to democracy and i agree with that and he he puts forward what he sees as the virtues we need and they are honesty truthfulness trustworthiness self-restraint 
and loyalty to our political, legal and other institutions. And I think that's a great starting point. I think I think loyalty to institutions is a little bit passive and perhaps what I would like to encourage is a more active uh, engagement with a civic a sense of greater sense of civic contribution and engagement with these foundational pillars of democracy and that citizens are aware become more aware that this is this is the foundation on which all the other good things are made possible and that we need to protect them. Listen to Holfer, thanks for being on for the state. Thank you for having me. Lucinda's new book is called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy and is out now. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter and we are also on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.